Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. It is the Sunday afternoon following the Bercy final where Jack Sock was victorious. This is Sakib, your host. Today we have the pleasure of hosting uh, Andrew Burton, who's very familiar on tennis Twitter for his analytical tennis commentary uh, with meaningful stats. He himself was a contributor at Peter Boro's Tennis World blog for more than five years, and he's also reported from uh, events like Roland Garros, Indian Wells, and Toronto Masters. Uh, welcome, Andrew. Hey, it's great to be here. So before we get started, Andrew, what have you been up to as far as tennis is going? Just uh, I'm sure most listeners know you, but just uh, give us an intro of what you've been doing uh, as far as covering tennis in the recent years. So in the last few years, I, I mostly got into tennis writing through Tennis.com, through Pete Bodo's Tennis World site, where I was a moderator and a contributing editor for several years there, including doing some on-site reporting. I was a contributor to the Racket Reaction uh, blogs that they posted there, which was a lot of fun. After that, I uh, made some contributions to the Changeover site. Uh, and at the end of 2013, started to notice that the, the next generation of players after the Djokovic, Nadal, Murray, Del Potro generation weren't breaking through and eventually came up with a hypothesis that I called the Lost Boys and started to use the term the ATP Dark Ages coming. So some of the work that I've been doing for the changeover and on Tennis Twitter has been doing what I call a generational analysis uh, up through the most recent tournament, which is Paris-Bercy, about how, first of all, Generation Fed, then Generation Rafa, then Generation Grigor, Generation Nick, and now Generation Felix, which is what Denis Shapovalov belongs to, how they've been contributing to the ATP. And I mostly follow the ATP. I'm, I'm interested in the WTA, but most of the tennis that I follow these days is ATP tennis. Uh, fair enough. So that analysis probably can be very handy as a, I call the World Tour Finals the tennis's version of playoffs. The regular season has ended. The rest of the folks are going home, except these eight men who have made the cut. And let's start by talking about Jack Sock. Uh, what a way to book that ticket to London! Uh, not many believed, and not I think he himself did not believe that he had a he had a mathematical chance with so many uh, season ending uh, on the men's side, and then uh, a lot of guys in front of him just did not win want to win a match. So, what do you make of this week? A crazy week in Bercy? Absolutely, and uh, just after the the Paris final was concluded, um, the Tennis Channel guys played something from Monday this week where they were looking at the chances of American men to qualify for the World Tour Finals. So the, the American man who was in pole position was Sam Query. He went out early. Then John Isner was in with a shout, but he went out in the semifinal. And Paul Anacone, commenting on Monday, um, got a little bit of stick from his fellow commentators that, that Jack Sock had a mathematical chance to qualify if he won the the Paris final. Sock himself was down 5-1, I think, in a final set to Kyle Edmund, 
early in the tournament and came through that and then all of a sudden came in as a sort of a, a, a sprint from the back of the field, if you want to take a, a, a track racing metaphor, and, and was the last player standing and the last player to qualify directly for London. So well done, Jack Sock. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a guy like uh, many players back in the 80s or even early 90s. Jack Sock plays more than his fair share of uh, doubles tennis as well. Mm. So there's a lot of miles on the body and uh, uh, good to see him, you know, have uh, some American representation in uh, in London. So do you think he's going to be jaded or there's enough time for him to be re- uh, to be recovered and fully have a go at that uh, round robin system? Hmm. Good question. Um my guess is that um, there's everything to play for uh, in London. When you look at the um, the players who've qualified, there's still a question mark over Nadal. And if any player is going in jaded, then Nadal has to be up there. There's a question about whether the knee problems that he, he continues to have after the the hard court swing is going to keep him out from London. But but let's say that he plays. You've got Nadal and Federer, who are perennial players there. You've got Team and Chilich, who've both been there before. But then I think in the rest of the field, it's a first time for all of them. And they've got to navigate their way through round robin. Uh, David Goffin has quite a lot of miles on him as well. Uh, Chilich wasn't looking too spry in Paris this week. Team has had a hard go of it since the US Open. So I, I don't think Sock comes in as, as you know, last man standing. I think Sock has a chance certainly to make the semifinals. And once you get to the semifinals, then uh, you're in with a shout. Yeah, I agree with you because Stock has the weapons, you know, like to play well indoors. And since that motivational speech, uh, a lot of people have been talking about it. The John McEnroe gave him a pep talk uh, during that Labor Cup changeover when he was playing uh, Rafael Nadal. Uh, he definitely, you know, is a guy who had the swagger about him, but did not have the results to back it up. So I think this is uh, this is a good story for him. This is a good year uh, year end performance. And you're right. Yeah, he. I mean, no offense to Carino Busta, but I think in those indoor conditions in London, I think Sock definitely has more of a chance if uh, Pablo Carino Busta would have made it, and he himself had a great year too. Yeah, and Carino Busta still has a shot, as we as we said, if Nadal does decide that the to concentrate on the long term uh, and to be fully fit again when the next major comes around in January, that he he decides that he's not going to play in London, and and as you know. Nadal has skipped the World Tour Finals several times, has never won the event. If there are any doubts about his ability to play five matches in a short space of time against some of the toughest opposition in the world, you could you could see Nadal making that call. I, 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 I'm not a betting man on whether Nadal participates. I think that it, I think it would be a loss for the tournament if he doesn't. But if if I were a Nadal fan contemplating making a once-in-a-lifetime trip to see my favorite player, I might wait a little bit before booking my tickets to London. Yeah, I think fans always, you know, a lot of times, uh, myself included, we have uh, 
sometime a shorter uh, you know vision we don't look at the big picture but what Roger Federer and even Nadal has done in the last uh, year or so i think this kind of decision making is going to be the norm going forward and even these uh, injury breaks that a lot of top m- men uh, male players took i think that's something uh, that's going to be the new new future where uh, if you're not feeling well if you're not uh, if you're playing with a niggle i think a lot of people would just i think look at this as a new a new behavior maybe some off time is needed away from the tour and you can you know come back more regrouped and you know work work your game so yeah it's interesting to see if nadal is going to make it or not uh, how does the, the rest of the field i know you said a lot of guys are coming for the first time is there anyone outside federer of nadal you see who can win this thing goodness i you know i i think back to 2009 where nikolai davidenko played juan martin del potro in the final and davidenko won it and and davidenko had a lot of momentum going into 2010 but i think if you'd have looked at the the field going into 2009 and picked your finalists if you picked those two then you're a, a smarter analyst than i was back then so none of the players ought to go in thinking i don't have a shot at this clearly on the basis of the seasons that they've had if both players are fit then you would think that nadal and federer would have the the best chances to win it i very much doubt that if he is fit that alexander zverev uh fears anyone in the field i i guess the you know the lower down that you go particularly as with the exception of, of sok who, who almost certainly feels that he's playing with house money none of the 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 lower rank qualifiers really came steaming into the the final stretch of the season but but honestly i i've been around long enough not to say well you know it's certain to be one of the two top seeds um going back to the very first grand slam this year uh one of my favorite pieces of reporting from the australian open has all the pundits looking at who were their favorites on the ATP side to win and to a man and a woman they were they were picking Djokovic and Murray uh which made a lot of sense and you saw how that turned out so i think i you know i would say any one of them on their day can be competitive but it's silly not to think that that one of the the two top seeds is going to be in the mix at the death Yeah, fair enough and uh, it's a great example you use in your uh, explanation with uh, citing the 2009 edition of the World Tour final. I remember uh, in one of the groups uh, Federer, Del Potro, Murray and Verdasco were there and Verdasco I think lost to lost all three matches and the other three men I think it came down to games won and lost in the end. That's how close Absolutely. you know the stats were. Yeah, Murray was eliminated to the to the shock and dismay of yes. the British. <laughs> so, I know it's, it's you fancy a lot of tennis stats and I was just uh, looking at uh, the field that has qualified and Dominic Team no, you know, nothing take away from his year, but he's coming in as uh, the fourth or fifth ranked player to qualify with only 3700 points on the board. In the years past, I don't think that was even that would even make the cutoff as number 8. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I'm actually going to do that. Um so this was something that I I took a look at in 
the last few weeks or so, back in 2013, I remembered that, that, that Federer was scrambling for the first time in, in years to, to try and make the World Tour Finals. And so I was looking at what the, the, the cutoff point was. And my recollection was that the low 3000s was, was a pretty good marker. So I actually pulled up the, the ranking points at qualification for the, the top nine players. Now, as you know, often uh, a player has qualified for the finals, as this year Vavrinka did, but has been injured and not been able to, to take part. So what I did was to take a look at the, the top nine players. And basically, the, the way you can think about it is that to, to qualify as of right and leaving aside the question of whether you won a grand slam and were in the top 20, so that, that sort of slightly weird ITF rule that plays in. But let's say you qualify by right by being in the top eight, you basically have to be about five points ahead of the the number nine player. So the average that would would get you in is about 3,100 points. In 2014, there was a very, very tight uh, scramble for the last place. And the the number nine player lost out on forty one fifty points, which is the highest that somebody has had and missed out. And that was Marin Cilic that year. But in two thousand and nine, three thousand and fifteen points would have gotten you in. In two thousand thirty two forty five, in two thousand and eleven, twenty four hundred points would have got you in because Gasquet was ninth with 23.95. And I'm not going to read all the points off, but if you've got about 3,300 points and you're coming in towards Paris, most years you're, okay. you're in good shape. So, okay, so then I stand corrected. But team as a, with 3,700 points uh, qualifying as a number four guy, that's kind of uh, not the normal uh, points pattern that you've seen. If it, with those kind of points, he would... Correct. So typically the sorry the typically the number four player the average is about fifty nine hundred mm. points. So it's fair to say like these are the points that Djokovic, Murray, Wawrinka left on the table, and then you know those points got split into so many other players. Normally the consistency has been the strength of the top men, and this year the point uh, distribution is not as top heavy as we've seen. Uh, before we get to the tournament, actually, uh, there's also this experimental tournament that's taking place in Milan. And a lot of tennis fans are not taking that as a serious event, but just a promotional part of the ATP establishment. So how do you see that event and uh, what's the fun part and what's the not so fun part of the, the, the next week in Milan? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'm going to put myself in, in, in the group of people who is, you know, not getting up early every morning uh, Houston time to watch every match. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but I think the most interesting thing for me about the Milan tournament is it's obviously a promotional effort to get people interested in the next generation of players, and that's how it's been marketed. But also the ATP has, has begun trialing uh, some different format changes. 
and things like allowing coaching and a shot clock. And I think it, it, it raises some really interesting questions about decisions that you make about the structure of the game and its business model going into the end of the 2010s and into the 2020s. Because I think the tour finds itself really at a turning point. Um, last year, Nadal and Federer of the Big Four didn't finish the season. This year, Djokovic and Murray pulled a ripcord early. And a lot of the, the established players are now well into their 30s. As I said, the, the thing that I've been noticing over the last three or four years is the next generation that would typically be there to replace them really hasn't come on. And so the, the, the ATP and the ITF really face a, a, an important question. Do we try and go into the 2020s with the structure of tennis tournaments and tennis matches the way it has been? Or do we try to adapt the game, you know, make matches shorter, punch up the format of tennis? And you could see going in two different directions. You could see them staying what you could think of as the traditionalist route or trying to bring tennis into the 21st century, if you wanted to call it that. And, and so I see the Milan tournament as very much an, uh, an experiment about if some of these things work, Will we see it in the the main tournaments in 2018, 2019 and becoming established features as we move yeah, well into because, the 2020s? Uh, we had this chat, this podcast with uh, my co-host and uh, I'm a little old school and uh, I really, I mean, I see the dilemma that when Federer, Nadal and even Djokovic, these guys leave, uh, they have to have the new faces. But at the same time, uh, before Federer, you know, there was Sampras and there's always this uh, era of players that come and go. And I know this is the golden uh, golden period of tennis, but at the same time, I don't think many tennis fans would like to tinker with the scoring system and the formats. And uh, some of the stuff uh, they're trying is, uh, I don't, I don't want to use the word desperate, but they, they have to just wait and see because look what happened in women's tour. Like Serena Williams took the year off and uh, how competitive it became. So whenever that day comes when Federer calls it a day and Nadal's not winning majors anymore and Novak's on his way out. It could be very even Stevens in the, in the men's field. And they have a lot of personalities like Nick Kyrgios, Shapovalov, Zverev, and uh, Dimitrov is going to be there for a while. So maybe uh, I'm just thinking more like a fan, but I don't think there's much broken. Uh, some of the stuff is good, like no warm-up and uh, you know some of the scoring things or even coaching some people like it. I'm personally against it. Those changes are okay, but scoring format changes... Uh, I think it's a little premature, in my opinion. So I personally fully agree in the sense that that's where my sentiment is. So I wouldn't disagree with people who described the last seven or eight years in the ATP as a golden era for quality of matches, for memorable matches, You know, going back to some of the fantastic five-set Federer-Nadal matches, in 2005, 2006, 2007, uh, and then the match that everyone remembers, the the Wimbledon final in 2008, and then Murray and Djokovic, obviously Novak first, joining the the big two to make the big three and then the big four. The, the, the way that ATP tennis uh, 
has been played over the the last ten years. It, it's been remarkable quality. On the WTA side, it's been interesting that you've had Serena Williams has has been head and shoulders above everyone else. And and basically, I did some analysis about uh, four or five years ago on players making the semifinals. And what I found was that after 2008, you had the ATP Big Four almost locking out the rest of the field in, in several years. On the women's side, Serena Williams was basically booking a quarterfinal and semifinal slot and beyond. But there were very few other players who were repeat performers. So the ATP has enjoyed a golden era. Now, maybe the, the, the WTA will do that. And, and, and really, the, the question is, where are the next stars going to come from? And I think if you have a, a group of stars able to, to carry the tours forward, you won't get quite as much grumbling about the formats don't work. But this year at the WTA finals, you had Halip going in as the, the new number one. Uh, she didn't make it out of the round robin. She finished the year as number one with fewer than 6,000 points. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to downplay her achievement. Uh, you know, getting to the number one of, of the tour at any stage is a remarkable feat. But it, it does kind of speak to, I think, something like seven out of eight of the players who entered the, the WTA Tour finals could have finished in the number one spot. And you, you, you get into a lot of arguments about depth versus stability. But I think for, for, for tennis to prosper, you need a balance between the stars and the, the people coming up. And to a certain extent on both tours, that, that balance has been out of whack for a while. So I, I think that contributes the, to, to the argument about whether or not you, you need to change tennis to make it more interesting for people. The more stars there are that you can expect to see in the late stages of tournaments, plus new and up-and-coming stars, the more I think people will rely on the traditional form. If that doesn't happen, I, I think that you'll see all kinds yes, of tweaking enough. and experimentation. Uh, it's a cycle, I believe. Uh, WTA is, you know, looks like they're going to make a move now. Uh, with, uh, like you said, a depth of players who can contend. And uh, sticking to the field in Milan, is there anyone here in this group besides, uh, actually Zverev is not part of this group now, so who do you uh, fancy most to make the big leap next year or the next two years? So who, who's coming out of this lot to contend with the big boys and compete on equal grounds? I think, like most people, um, the Canadian Shapovalov is... Uh, is a really interesting player. Plays with an attacking one-handed backhand um, and isn't frightened of attacking play. Has a lot of work to do to to make his net play more interesting, uh, or if not more interesting, uh, more consistent. Let me say. But his defeat of Nadal 
in Montreal this year. That you know that was a a, a beacon, and then his run at uh, the U.S. Open and participation in the Lever Cup, I, th- I think, made people sit up and, and take notice. Of the other players, um, I've enjoyed watching Tiafo this year. I think that the, he's got things, as all of the players do, to work on. Rublev had a had a decent price year at, at the US Open. To a certain extent, that, that felt more like the competition he played rather than the um the level of play that he himself was capable of when he he got to, to take on the doll it, it it wasn't close he he was given a tennis lesson by the eventual winner of the event um one of the things that i think is is really interesting when you look at the younger generation you can go on tennis abstract and take a look at the the top players by age group and you can look at the younger players, so players under 20, players under 21, players under 22, and then you can look at the older generations, the players above 30, 31, 32, 33, etc. And in the last three or four years, there's been a big crossover. And so the tour now is much more dominated by older players than it was 15 years ago. So 15, 20 years ago, the the players who qualified for Milan, most of them would have qualified for, for London as well. Whereas this year you had Zverev, who qualified with points to spare and had, had spoken of, of playing in Milan, but has chosen now just to play in London. And when you look at the other players who've who've made it to Milan... Uh, you know, I can I can quickly take a look around and, and check on their rankings, but there's not that many of them uh, in the top forty, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, I think um, uh, I I also have the same view. The sport has become physical, so it's very e- it's become increasingly difficult for for these uh, younger players to come and establish themselves on the pro tour, and that's why the age that dominates tennis has kind of gone up into the mid-20s and people are peaking a little later. Uh, here's one guy who is a couple of years older than the field in Milan, but he's not making the cut uh, in London. But he is back home now, Nick Kyrgios, and he said in a recent interview that he would love to be, he's aiming to be number one, say, in the next five years. So what do you make of that that comment? Uh, is you know His commitments a lot of times questioned, but I think he's good for tennis if he can put his act together. What do you make of that comment? Kyrgios is um, one of the most interesting players on the tour right now, I think, just in terms of, 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 of pure star quality. Uh, and and when he's on and when his, his game is on, he can beat anybody uh, and has done. Uh, Beat Djokovic twice this year, uh, made his breakthrough against Nadal, beat Federer the first time they played him. This year, um, he played one of what I think is certain to be in the top 10 matches of the year, which is the semifinal uh, against Federer in Miami, which was a, a just one of the highest quality 
uh, three set matches you could wish to see. So in, in, in terms of, of pure, abil- pure match playing ability, uh, tremendous. Interestingly, David Wheaton, who is a, a former top US player and now a coach and who's begun to write about you know, tennis technique, is someone who isn't a committed fan of, of Kyrgios's technique at the moment in terms of his balance and the way that he plays his shots, uh, which, I, which I found interesting. And then the other thing with Kyrgios, obviously, is the mental dimension, the ability um, to bring it against a player who's ranked number 60 in the world in a round of 16 match in Monte Carlo, as opposed to a semi-final of a Masters against a Federer or a Djokovic. And for, for all of the players, what, what we have not seen, even with Alexander Zverev, who this year um, was the, the first new generation player to win Masters titles, which he did in Rome and in um, uh, Montreal as well. He beat Federer in the final in Montreal. Zverev didn't get deep in any of the Grand Slams, sort of petered out a little bit at the back end of the season. This ability to bring it consistently week in, week out is is what distinguishes the the, the very top players. And obviously Kyrgios hasn't been able to do that yet. Zverev Younger, a bit younger than than Kyrgios, but both of those players are are now being looked to as okay. If you're going to to be a top five player, a consistent top five player, what are you going to be able to do so that you 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 bring that top level twelve tournaments a year rather than two or three tournaments a year? Yeah, Zverev, I think. Uh... Not pe- many people are uh, talking about it. He played a lot of tennis this year. I think what 94, 95 matches, and still has few matches to go in London. So I will, be, of course, as tennis fans, we'll be very excited to keep uh, uh, track. You know how Kyrgios and Zverev progress uh, when twenty eighteen rolls around. Uh, yeah. Before we wrap things up, uh, let's circle back to Bercy and a couple of stories that we have to speak about. One is the surprise finalist. Krajanovic, uh, did you see this? I mean, nobody saw this run coming. What do you make of this, and are, how impressed are you with this guy's composure? And he came with one set of winning a Masters 1000. Yeah, so when you look at, at Krajanovic's tournament, two top 10 wins is, no matter who you are, you're going to look at that as a, a, a pretty decent showing. Uh, what I remember most from watching him play was the final set tiebreak against John Isner because he went down a mini break early and against John Isner, that is a hill to climb in a final set tie break. But he fought his way back into it and took his chance with a plum. It looked as though in the final against Sock, by the time the third set came around, he, he he really was running out of steam and can be forgiven that given that he qualified 
and and had come through the the full draw, you know, with the exception of a a walk over to Nadal. So I believe he's he's going to go into the Australian Open ranked somewhere in the mid thirties, maybe thirty three or so, which likely means that he may pick up a low seed, assuming that the top thirty two don't all make it into the main draw. So he's got a he's got a, a, a chance to establish himself as we roll into twenty eighteen. The the one tidbit I read which I found really interesting was that Krinovich is much in demand among other players as a practice partner because apparently he, he readily adapts his style and if you're suppose that you're playing Jack Sock or you're playing um, I don't know about Vradasco who's left handed, but suppose you're playing Marin Cilic that that Krinovich can adapt the way he plays to make it similar to your next opponent. So that's that's a, a nice trait to have, I think. Yeah, definitely. And uh, with this ranking, like you said, he will also have entry in uh, you know many of the Masters 1000, which you know is at the most coveted events after the slams. So yeah, the future is bright all of a sudden for this, uh, this young man. Uh, he'll have plenty of looks next year. And before we wrap it up, a uh, lot of focus has been on the tournament director and former French player Guy Forget, who has been uh, repeatedly uh, in this past week uh, being very critical. And rightfully so, in his mind, he's upset that Federer withdrew. But uh, what were the real expectations that Federer is going to show up, uh, given how he's preserving his body lately and, you know, he doesn't play consecutive weeks till he really absolutely has to. So someone who works in tennis and uh, you think this kind of a behavior was, uh, uh, I know he was venting to the press, but you think uh, this is this was justified, and and even Forger is thinking that Federer probably will never play his event given he's more close to retirement, maybe next couple of years. So is this a bridge that Forger has burned, in your opinion? Well, I I honestly can't see Federer skipping the Basel tournament if he's fit. Um, he's got a contract there, I understand now for the next three years, but of all the events in the tour apart from Wimbledon Basel is the is the one tournament that Federer is not going to miss if fit Federer has played in Bercy he's a he's a former champion there um but like many players if he's qualified for London it's sometimes an ask to say that uh he, he he will play there. He I think the last time he went there he he lost in a quarterfinal to to Raonic. Uh, I'm guessing 2015, but it might have been 2014. Yeah. I think that if I remember rightly, the the Forge's peak was partly at the way that the withdrawal was handled. That it was Federer's agent who got on the phone and, and was saying stuff about Federer's back and Federer had just finished a three-set final in uh, in Basel looking like he was moving pretty well. And then later Federer explained that he, he was, again, taking a, a medium-term view, let's say, and, and, and wanting to protect himself against injury rather than having pulled out from Bercy because of injury. 
Now, Federer is one of the players who, because of uh, achieving um, the three criteria which set out attendance at Masters finals, he's, he now has all of them, number of matches played, um, age, and like Rick Perry, I forget the third, but there are, there are three criteria, but now that means that he can pick whichever Masters that he, he wants to enter. That will now be available in the coming years to Nadal. It will be available to Djokovic, who turns um, 31 in 2018. So from 2019, that will be available to Djokovic and Murray. It is available now to Vavrinka and to Nadal going into next year. So as you said, the the for all of the Masters, not just Bercy, um, I think it'll be interesting as we go into 2018 and 2019, seeing how the top players structure their calendar. As far as Forger is concerned, the Bercy tournament, it's unfortunate, but structurally it is in the weakest spot of the tour because a lot of times players know that they've qualified for London before Bercy happens. A lot of times they may be carrying injuries and, and may decide that they, they want to shut the season down as a, a player like uh, Thomas Berdyk or Nick Kyrgios, who we've talked about. They decided to shut their seasons down. And Federer is a player who still sells tickets and whose face still appears on posters and I think was on the posters advertising the tournament in Paris. So... If I were Guy Forget, uh, I don't know if I'd have kicked the cat, but I'd have, I'd have had a stiff glass of Perrineau before talking to the press about Federer. Yeah, likewise, I feel the same. He overreacted, and uh, hopefully, you know, Bercy could garner some attendance. Maybe we'll have a 2014 similar year when there's, you know, each slam has a different winner, and someone like Marin Cilic with 4,100 points will miss out. So that may not be a bad scenario for Bercy if players go deep and are battling for that last spot in the last week of ATP play. So, Andrew, that was a very fun chat, and hopefully we can have you here again. Uh, thanks for doing this on a Sunday. Yep. No, I was, uh, thank you for inviting me, and uh, it's going to be very interesting, not just Milan, but London, and moving into 2018, I think, perhaps more than in previous years in the ATP uh, everyone approaches 2018 with yep. there being a lot to play it's for. It's going to be a special year with so many comebacks. 